Welcome to the 2019 Prima Podcast Series. My name is Shonda Ragland. I am the Director of Education and Training at Prima. On this Prima Podcast, Tom Rickard will discuss what to know about V2V and V2I technologies. Tom is the Vice President, Head of Marketing and Emerging Risk Specialist for the Argo Group. Tom has enjoyed a 37-year career in the insurance industry. He has extensive underwriting and marketing experience in all property and casualty lines of business spanning across multiple segments and industries. We will also be joined by Taekwon Gilbert, a member of Prima's education and training team. Taekwon will moderate the discussion. Enjoy the podcast. Tom, thank you for joining us today on Prima's podcast series. What is vehicle-to-vehicle and vehicle-to-infrastructure, and what are the basics of the technology? Thank you for having me here, Taekwon. I appreciate the opportunity. Vehicle-to-vehicle and vehicle-to-infrastructure technology is sort of part of a larger platform of what is being developed in the United States and across the world as part of an intelligent transport system. So that includes vehicles talking to each other, infrastructure like traffic lights, parking, intersections, uh, roadside assistance, talking back to the vehicle, and then that intercommunication between all the different pieces of the transportation system. It's based upon the communications system, an open communication system that we look at for a a standardization of how uh, vehicles and infrastructure will communicate to each other. In the United States, we're working on the FCC had allocated a band of the spectrum, the five gigahertz spectrum. And so we're waiting uh, to work on that standardization so that the communication structure works well and we don't end up with the the Betamax versus cassette and all the different standards that you could have. So it'd be best to have them all aligned. So the overall intelligent transport system consists of those pieces, the vehicle-to-vehicle, the vehicle-to-infrastructure, and the infrastructure back to the vehicle. Does any of this technology intersect with autonomous vehicles? Yes, absolutely. In fact, in order to have the higher level of autonomous vehicles, this is a requisite technology that that vehicle will have to communicate with the road, with intersections, with traffic lights, and with other vehicles in order to enter its fully autonomous state. So in order to have a fleet that is even partially or fully autonomous, you're going to have to have that kind of communication between the vehicles and the infrastructure to make them possible. Now, conversely, the vehicle-to-vehicle and the vehicle-to-infrastructure, that technology is not dependent on the the vehicle being totally autonomous. And that's uh, one of the things that we see right now is that some vehicles right now, without interacting with any other technology, they have crash avoidance or blind spot. You can get your vehicle today, can recognize uh, that there's somebody in your blind spot and flash a little warning sign. You have a collision avoidance where it'll give you a, a tone to hit the brakes when you're approaching another vehicle too quickly. So there are these pieces of internal communication, driver to vehicle communication existing today. The idea is that you can't have an autonomous vehicle, a fully autonomous vehicle without vehicle to vehicle and vehicle to infrastructure. You can have the vehicle to vehicle and vehicle infrastructure in a car that is not fully autonomous. So that technology will most likely be deployed first. Are there any realistic timelines for deployment of the technology? 
Several years ago, the Department of Transportation, the National Highway Safety Administration had, along with the government, begun to look at what standards they wanted to use and if there was going to be a mandate for this type of technology in vehicles. There was a timeline to have that technology rolled out, having proposed the rules in 2016. 2018 was going to be the year for mandating the vehicle-to-vehicle technology. And by 2021 is to have that technology included in 100% of the new car production. Now, that said, even if that timeline had been adhered to, you can start to put it in all the vehicles, but it would take five, 10 years to roll over an entire fleet based on the number of cars that are out there, the number of new cars purchased each year. It will take you know, five, 10 years to totally turn over the fleet. Now, in late 2017, the administration has said that they would not be moving towards that mandate for V2V technology in 2018. It's sort of been put on hold. So there will be some probably delay in a broad rollout of the technology, but right now, some of it is already in proof of concept or beta deployments around the country. Miami has installed some traffic light controllers and other technology to begin that vehicle to infrastructure talking back and forth. Las Vegas and Audi car manufacturer had a joint private-public project to work on the vehicle to infrastructure connection. And recently, in January of 2018, Denver approved a $12 million four-year testing program through a grant from the federal government where they're going to be looking at uh, three pieces. One, connecting freight. So trying to reroute freight out of, you know, freight vehicles out of neighborhoods and on arterial streets. They're going to work on connecting their fleet. So about 1,500 of their public works vehicles will be relaying data back to a transportation management center. And then they're looking at connected, what they call connected citizens, which is a pedestrian vehicle warning system to try and lessen the frequency of uh, pedestrian vehicle accidents. So some of this technology is already rolling out along the same line. That, that's really what is going to uh, totally influence that realistic timeline is you need to have enough vehicles with it. You have to have that critical mass in order for it to do any good. Vehicle to vehicle doesn't do much good if you know, only one out of 10 vehicles has that, that capability. So, and that plus the agreement on the communication standards, there are tech companies who want a certain protocol within the, uh, the spectrum, auto companies or one another with the dedicated short range communication. So there is a, a bit of tension with how that spectrum is going to be used. So there has to be an agreement on how uh, that communication standard is going to be deployed. From a cost standpoint, it's not relatively inexpensive. The National Highway and Transportation Safety Administration estimates the current cost to equip vehicles with the equipment and the security equipment that would go with it, about $350 per vehicle. The advantage to roll out between, for example, autonomous cars and the technology that's involved and the vehicle-to-vehicle or vehicle-to-infrastructure is you can install aftermarket communications equipment. So that equipment can be installed on a vehicle you have today in order to make it communicate with either the infrastructure that has the technology or with a brand new vehicle that had the the equipment as as original equipment. So that's an advantage to to, to speeding out the rollout of vehicle to vehicle or vehicle to infrastructure. Most manufacturers estimate that they could be up and running 
between two and a half to, to three years after the regulatory action is finalized. So when it's final, they say this is the standard we're going to use, et cetera. Most vehicle manufacturers agree that within two and a half to three years, they could have that into their production lines. Some of them already do. Cadillac and Audi actually have the vehicle-to-vehicle communications and vehicle-to-infrastructure communications capability within their 2017 model, and they're going to do it going forward. And other manufacturers will be following that. So a realistic time frame is beta testing now. Over the next uh, two to three years, you'll see more and more of these technologies deployed. And within, again, if there's regulatory mandating and there is agreement on standards, communication standards and security protocols, within five to 10 years, you could see a mass deployment of this technology. What are some of the benefits of V2V and V2R technology? One thing that stands out is the safety features, that there would be fewer accidents and fewer deaths. When you look at just two applications, left turn assist and intersection movement assist, where the communication between the vehicles and the infrastructure or the vehicles to the vehicles sort of prevents somebody from turning left into another car or advises when you're entering an intersection that there may be another vehicle or other vehicles approaching. Just those two types of technology could eliminate almost 600,000 crashes per year and save more than a thousand lives. So when you can reduce that number of crashes and save that many lives, I mean, it's a significant improvement just with those two types of applications. With full deployment, there is an estimate that 80% of all non-alcohol-related accidents, crashes, could be eliminated by the full deployment of that technology. So beyond that, beyond just the safety aspects, you know, there's environmental benefits. When you're moving traffic more efficiently because your time to stoplights or traffic signals, you're using the most optimum route. Uh, vehicles are following each other at a good pace and accidents are being avoided. So there's not as much congestion. There's not as much idling time. And a significant amount of emissions are created when cars are just sitting idling in traffic. So a significant amount of that could be eliminated. And in addition, it's that quality of life. When mobility is increased, there's less time in your commutes. People get there more efficiently. They get there less frustrated. So there are these benefits that occur from I'm more safe. I avoid accidents. Lives are saved. I'm helping in fuel consumption and in emissions control because we're not sitting idling in our cars. And from that, I'm spending less time in my car. I'm not spending as much time on the commute. So that quality of my life is improved. So those are some of the uh, major benefits of the technology. Thanks for tuning in to this Prima podcast. I would like to take a moment and invite you to Prima's 2019 annual conference, June 9th through 12th in Orlando, Florida. Here are some words from Prima's meetings director, Monique Gilliam regarding Prima's 2019 annual conference. If you haven't heard, Prima's exhibit booth sales are now open. We are over 50% to capacity and space is filling up fast. So reserve your spot today by visiting www.primacentral.org and clicking the annual conference tab. We'll see you in Orlando. To learn more about Prima's 2019 annual conference, visit primacentral.org. What are some of the risks associated with the technology and are there any insurance implications for public entities? With every kind of technology or, or any kind of action, you know, as 
all the people I, I think that, that are listening to this podcast who are involved in insurance or risk management really understand is that no matter what you do, there's some kind of risks involved. For this kind of technology, obviously, there's a cyber risk involved. So how do you build an, a security infrastructure that allows the infrastructure and the vehicle to communicate with each other and communicate with each other in an environment of trust? So there has to be these layers of security that says, this signal I'm receiving from here is telling me the truth. Therefore, I will act like this. I'll take this action. So that's probably one of the more critical aspects of the risk evaluation is how is that security infrastructure built, layered, and controlled. Second risk sort of aligned with the cyber risk is privacy. One of the commitments to the type of technology and how it works and how the standards and regulations will be set up is that it won't collect or store any data on the individual or the vehicle. And that none of the messages, that none of the data in the messages that vehicles send to each other, send to infrastructure, would be allowed or accessible for law enforcement use. It is making sure that it is data that is not attributable to any individual or any particular vehicle. So the privacy concerns will take place on the type of technology that's used and how that data is processed. But you're going to then have to build uh, that same environment of trust when you're, when you're talking about the equipment to the equipment between the people and the equipment that they're going to have to accept that they know enough about it and trust it enough in order to know that, that it's not impinging on their, their privacy rights. And certainly the cyber piece has implications with regards to especially public entities and their infrastructure and whether the equipment that they're using is vulnerable to hacking. So if somebody gets into a system and changes all the sequence of the stoplights or prevents certain communication between the vehicle and the infrastructure, the damage that could cause, the liability that could create from those malfunctioning systems has an impact on the way that the cyber insurance is structured and to a certain extent to what premium would be charged for that increased risk from that, that equipment being deployed. There's uh, some of the obvious things, which are, you know, it's high-tech equipment and it's valuable equipment, and it will increase insurance values and, and property owned uh, by, the, uh, by the entities, and it'll have to be insured. And in some cases, it may be higher risk type of equipment that is subject to certain types of, of, of damage that could relate, result in certain types of rate changes uh, based upon that equipment and the risk that apply to it. The whole thing with regards to the, the risk management, and it relates to the insurance, but the risk management is almost the same as everything else that you do. There's that blocking and tackling that you do when you look at your full risk management program, which may include insurance, other types of, of risk transfer, that you assess the risk. What is it that I've deployed? What are the systems that I have? You do that. How does this fit into my total risk management program? What is it? What can happen? How do I protect it? How do I mitigate it? How do I transfer it? Many of the systems are going and its information are going to be controlled through third-party vendors. Just like cities and towns do today, they have certain vendors that they use to handle their data, store, the, store their data, repair their equipment, et cetera. So that same type of vetting and that you do on third-party vendor contracts and how each party relates to each other, it's going to be the same type of approach that they have to take on this risk. So it's, it really is, I do a risk assessment now for my low-tech exposures. You're doing the same type of risk assessment and risk analysis on 
your high-tech applications. Also, when you look at the same type of insurance impact that this type of technology will have on society as a whole, public entities will have that same type of effect. If they have fewer accidents in their fleet vehicles, they spend less money on their deductibles, they spend uh, their rates go down, uh, they have better experience on their workers' comp because fewer employees are injured. When you look at not just that auto exposure, employees being hurt in autos, the auto equipment being damaged, that kind of thing. Think about the road work and the public works. If there is this infrastructure that tells vehicles are approaching, they know it's a work area, therefore the vehicle reacts in a certain way, the driver reacts in a certain way. Now that they're aware of that, you will have fewer injuries to your work crews. All those things combine into a reduced risk that accompanies the increased risk from some of the equipment. So it's that balance of uh, that benefit from fewer injuries, fewer accidents, uh, lower rates uh, versus what I have to do to ensure it and contemplate things like my cyber and privacy risk. So there are other risks and mitigation things that uh, cities and towns will have to look at. You have to fit it into your emergency and crisis plan. What happens when, when the power goes out? Just the simple things like power backup. How do I put into my plan if everything goes real bad, like in, in some of the catastrophe that, we, that we've seen over the last year, how do I, can I revert back to a manual process or an analog process that allows traffic to move and lights to go off and on? So there, always ha- ha- there have to be those things uh, contemplated within the emergency or the crisis management plan that says, I have this technology, it has all these benefits, but if it stops working, how do I continue to fulfill the mission? of my town, which is keeping people safe, keeping the wheels moving. It seems that the impact on public entities will be significant. What are some of the major opportunities and challenges for communities? Well, I think, you know, when you take in consideration some of these things that we've we've talked about is, I think the ability to have this situational awareness that is created by uh, both the vehicle to vehicle and the vehicle to infrastructure, when you're able to prioritize traffic signals and uh, give priority to emergency vehicles, when you're able to notify other vehicles that emergency uh, and first responder vehicles are approaching, you will have fewer accidents. When you have fewer traffic accidents, when you have speed limit laws more closely adhered to because of that feedback that the driver gets from the infrastructure, uh, there are going to be fewer traffic violations. And that will allow deployment of police officers to more important tasks than routine traffic stops. As I mentioned before, your work zones will be safer. It will lower both citizenry and employee injuries. And when you think about uh, school buses and understanding how the children enter and exit the buses, the things that we have now with the, uh, the arms that come down, the flashing lights, if there is more of feedback between the vehicles and the buses that surround the buses, then you would most likely reduce some accidents there and, and, and create more safe school bus environment. Other things that, you know, when you think about city parking, many towns and cities own parking spaces and the vehicle to infrastructure will allow them to better use that and better deploy it because people now see, oh, okay, if I go to, to this block and to this section, there's where the parking is available. I can avoid this one because it's not. And so that ease of use can increase the use of those city services that may not be uh, used today. So there are, uh, again, all kinds of 
opportunities for communities to tie the vehicle to vehicle vehicle to infrastructure into this total, people refer to it as smart city infrastructure, that traffic lights will light and dim according to traffic or pedestrian flow, thereby saving communities money on, on, on their electrical costs. All these types of things where the city now becomes this, this platform for, I can get around well, I can keep myself safe, I keep the pedestrian safe, and I can also now use these services more efficiently. First responders, hospitals, social services, all these things start to work together as certain technology is deployed. And right now, the vehicle-to-vehicle and vehicle-to-infrastructure is one of the ones that can probably be deployed most quickly of some of the emerging technologies for cities. We have reached the end of our podcast. Thanks so much, Tom and Taekwon. Please visit the Prima website to listen to other Prima podcasts, join upcoming Prima webinars, read Prima blogs, and learn about additional Prima educational resources. Be sure to check us out on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and our very own Prima Talk. Enjoy the rest of your day.